In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teachers leave the kids alone. Those lyrics were recorded by Pink Floyd in 1979, over 40 years ago. Yet those words still apply today. Does the environment of the public school system limit individual thought, new ideas, and innovation? Instead, reward obedience and conformity. On today's podcast, we discuss the public school system. Good morning. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Roger, Kelly. Good morning, morning. Sean. Good morning, Roger. I'd like to start today off by playing a game. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go, yes. Um, (laughs) You guys know Jeopardy, right? Yep. Okay, so uh, I cannot do Alex Trebek, but I can do Will Ferrell doing Alex Trebek. And um, I only have one category here, so I'm gonna we're gonna start off, and we're gonna do this kind of Jeopardy style. All right. I don't have a category description, um, but I'm just gonna read. Uh, I, I, I'll think of one off the top of my head. Um, so these are you these, really thought this one through? Yeah, I really did. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be a great game. <laughs> these are people. Uh, I'm gonna say the um, the invalid Victorians. Okay, that's the category name. Who is Kelly Weatherhold? <laughs> All right, here's here's our first one. Born in Scotland in 1835, this Scottish-American industrialist and philanthropist dropped out of elementary school at the age of 12 when his family immigrated to the United States. Settling in Allegheny, Pennsylvania, he led the expansion of the American steel industry in the late 19th century to become one of the richest Americans in history. During the last 18 years of his life, he gave away almost 90% of his wealth, roughly $5.2 billion in today's dollars to charities, foundations, Who is and Rockefeller? Who no. is Andrew Carnegie? Carnegie, you, Kelly, uh, Carnegie yes. Mellon. Give it to the educator. Okay, I got two more. Here we go. Let's see if Roger can get one of these. <laughs> Known as one of the most influential architects of the 20th century, he never attended high school. He designed more than 1,100 projects. Who's right? That's correct. Frank Lloyd Wright. Roger, you are not looking good. All right, we got one more, um, and then we'll continue. Although he dropped out of high school at the age of 16, this gentleman's career and accomplishments are incredible. Holding records for the most awards and nominations, his imagination includes cartoons and theme parks. Who is Disney? Who is Disney? Oh, ah, Kelly, three for three. Okay, so um, I wanted to give some that hopefully we'd be able to guess, but there are lots of examples of very successful people in the United States, even some recent that never graduated high school or never went to college. And uh, Beeler, Annie Ann's Pretzel Company, Mary Kay Ash of Mary Kay Cosmetics, Rachel Ray never went to college. On the men's side, Simon Cowell dropped out of high school. You know, American Idol, producer, all that stuff. Richard Branson, Wolfgang Puck all quit high school. So... My question to you, Kelly, as a distinguished educator, God, 
Do you think that maybe you're holding people back? You know, this, uh, this is a good question. And actually, one of the reasons that um, I, I want, I, I'm going to enjoy this podcast is because I actually believe in, in many instances we are. We are holding things back. So- right, sometimes we drop ourselves in the middle of the forest and uh, maybe we don't sit back and see, you know, the forest through the trees. So let's identify what the problem is. I mean, we were on this last podcast when we were talking about the concept of passive conformity, mm. uh, especially as, it, as it's a greater societal problem when we're talking about obedience without uh, really understanding why, just doing something because somebody told us to do so. And we're, and we're moving out of this pandemic right now over two years where a lot of people gave up like individual rights and the ability to be able to make decisions on your own through critical thinking. And when we started having this discussion about this podcast, it came out of a place saying, how, how did we get here? You know, right now the CDC is saying, you know, these cloth masks, they don't do anything to stop the, the coronavirus. They do nothing. But yet one year ago, year and a half ago, you know, we were arguing that the scientific data did not fit that. And so a lot of people put on these obedience masks just because they were told to, and now they believe it, that it was something that could protect them. The greater conversation was, like, as a system of public education, are we training obedience at the expense of your own ability to be able to do research, to have critical thought, uh, to be able to understand complex information, to be able to make decisions for yourself? In elementary, I think you're trying to get them to understand obedience, get them to understand what works so that you can have conversations. If you're teaching them to be, you know, to question everything at that age, first of all, I don't believe they're going to com- completely understand that. But then when you get up into the higher levels, that's when you should be teaching them to question versus being obedient, just simply answering questions, regurgitating things that the teacher is saying, and then literally putting it on a test and you're just repeating what the teacher says. Mm-hmm. So I do think that it does ch- transform throughout. But if, you're, if your question is, are we doing a bad job of that at the high school level? And, and, and when, as they get older, the answer is yes. All right. So you're speaking developmentally. So when kids are at a certain age, there's certain like develop, developmental milestones. This idea of kind of rote knowledge is important. You have to exactly kind of correct understand one plus one equals two. You're right. learning to read. Um, So it it speaks to this idea of like, how do you develop and build a curriculum? And then what's the greater purpose, right? So right now I have a a 20-year-old who's a junior in college. And she is in what's called a three plus three program. She's going to get her doctorate in physical therapy. Mm -hmm. She wants to to be in healthcare. She wants to be involved in physical therapy. And one of the things, especially with the high cost of secondary education. The idea that you're forced to take things like um, modern dance and like 18th century American literature when you're being trained to be a healthcare professional begins, and I think we're being awakened right now to systems that are in place to serve a select few at the expense of others. And that the the system is starting to crumble, whether it's the medical establishment, uh, whether it's secondary academia and education, public education, 
we're starting to question systems more. And ultimately, think I think that's a good thing, right? Because you waste thousands and thousands of dollars taking that dance class, yeah. right? I, I would say it's it's probably financially driven more than anything because in the last 10 to 15 years, the cost of a college or university education has gone ridiculously through the roof more than anything anything else in terms of inflation. So your return on your investment for a college or university level education, it's almost nearly impossible, especially if you're taking loans out. Mm-hmm. So you need to be making a lot of money out of college in order to make sure that you're getting the value out of that. So right. you're, bene- you're benefiting the banking industry. You know, you have these, uh, these elaborate, beautiful colleges with these nice dorms and uh, student centers and cafeterias. It's like you're, you're building like a little town uh, and, and someone's getting rich off of it, right? And it's, and it's not necessarily to benefit the student because come on with your, you know, your dance class at this level when you're being trained, you know, in healthcare. And so I think we're looking at everything with a critical eye now. So we have to look at the system of public education and how the curriculum is developed and who is that serving, right? All right. So my question to you boys right now is like, what would be an ideal educational system for you, your children, that could best prepare them for life? So let's, and then let's compare it to what, we, what we're dealing with. We're going to answer that, but you brought up curriculum. And I think it's important to our audience that they understand how curriculum is developed. Because this is, again, as an educator, when you talk to parents about this, they really don't understand. They'll get... Here, you have to select your classes. Most people are just like, well, what classes should I select? They go and they defer to the teacher or the counselors. But the curriculum that are designed um, are designed to anchor outcomes and standards of a national curriculum. That's part of it. And then those are developed and the state is required to, to anchor their own standards to the national standards. And therefore, in order to design a curriculum, basically teachers will most likely, unless you're a risk taker, um, they and, and you have administrative support. We'll get into that a little later. They will most likely design a curriculum that goes along with what bureaucrats are telling them to do. Yeah, so we, this goes unquestioned that somehow that our curriculum has to be in, in like globally, it has to be around a math and a, a category, math, a science, and English, a history, right? Like we're... The idea that we could think about education being differently than learning within those specific categories is probably foreign to most of our listeners. But I want to like propose something that that's not lear- learning within those specific categories does not equate to the skills that are required to have success in in the uh, the twenty first century. Correct. But does it give you some type of framework or basic understanding at, that you can then apply to things that are more appropriate for like the path that you choose in terms of your career? So this is where data data comes in. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I think the curriculum, I mean, they've always existed, but they were very broad, broad ended with no, you know, um, data points, mm-hmm. let's say 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, now it is driven by data. Data for what purpose? So- in, in, in part, it's going to be to see who's doing well and who's not doing well. It's in socioeconomic. In the specific categories specific that categories. someone wants to develop for some exactly. purpose. Ethnicity, socioeconomic categories, um, gender categories. So they have the numbers of how well, 
you know, uh, boys versus girls doing math at the fifth grade for, level. Yeah, for what purpose? Equality. Well, equality. Right. It, it, well, I mean, we have become the country of identity politics and categories, right? Correct. And uh, come on, this, this is definitely to kind of divide people into this idea of, uh, you know, equity across um, all metrics uh, as if everyone is the same. And we had this, we had this conversation previously and I don't want to belabor this point. Um, but when we talk about the system of public education, does it allow for the individual with their own talents and their own skills to be able to be shaped in a way that they can realize their own talents? No. And does it punish the independent creative thinker? Ones that might have like the Branson or other, one, other entrepreneurial kind of mindsets, thinkers, artists, does, do we have environments that allow them to really succeed in society or are we trying to still train the factory worker? Sadly, and I'm, I'm making some assumptions here, but I think when someone shows that they have a bit of potential or that they may be, you know, quote unquote gifted, Sometimes I believe the course of action is to pull them out of that public school environment and put them in a place where they might be able to thrive. Yeah, it's happening more and more. Um, I know that I was a gifted coordinator for quite some time. And, you know, the way that that uh, population was viewed was um, not necessarily in a positive light by many teachers. Uh, well, I'm Why? Was, first of all, I'm going to... Wait, the, the, hold, the hold gifted on. children? Get out of here with your, your gifted children. <laughs> right? Again, this goes back to what a system creates. Right. Who's Kelly, who's identified as gifted in the, public, uh, in, in the public school system? You have an IQ of 130 or above. You have certain academic abilities. And then, you know, you go through an actual um, test. Yeah. So we, so we can, another podcast, <laughs> how, an, how an IQ test is developed, right? Yeah. Yes. And does that accurately accurately measure somebody's intelligence? And 130 IQ on that test, you know, cannot is not necessarily, you know, that significant. But it might predict that that person does well in that environment. So you like this idea of working memory, you mm -hmm. know, the ability to hold information into your brain to be able to almost memorize, so right? That's part of the test. The other part of the test that everybody scores high on at a young age, if they read, is the verbal. Yeah, is the verbal. Yeah, so it, it, I, I would say, like, if I remember, like, working memory is also your ability to, um, you know, pay attention. And I'm just applying it to, like, the business world. Like, I'll go to meetings, and I would hear people say things and conversations that were had, and I retained a lot of that. Yeah. That's not, like, memorizing. That's just, you know, being able to you know, absorb the amount of things that are potentially influential in a direction that we could go and then applying it elsewhere. But it's auditory. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's some people who can read something or see something and, and there's other people who can hear it. Mm -hmm. I'm the person who can hear it. Right. So I have to, there's an audio book, audio books I like to listen to. Yeah. I could sit in the front of class and not take a note. Yeah. Because I'm remembering it. Does that... But does you have that to be really paying attention and engaged in the conversation. So then there's other variables. There's attention. Yes. Right? And so, like, on the IQ tests, it's about digits. It's about numbers. Correct. Repeating numbers forward, yeah, backwards. Like, does yeah. that equal... I, I think people don't understand the limitations of our ability to accurately assess intelligence. I don't... It's very difficult for 
us to really understand what gifted means. To me, gifted is like you can sit down and play Mozart without being taught. You know, to me, gifted is... You can write computer language just reading a book on your own within a day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To me, gifted is being able to do calculus, mm-hmm. you know, like without ever being really taught. Yeah, just calculus because I we, cannot do calculus. And we had, talked about, <laughs> we had talked about this too. Remember, it was almost less than 1% of our world's population would be considered a 130 IQ or above at one point in time. I don't know if that changed, but for some reason that our district... It was a, a, a predominantly like ten five to ten percent of kids were identified as gifted. Yeah, oh yeah, statistically <laughs> impossible. But the reason they would do that is they would get their kids tested really early. Yeah, you know. So these kids who came from two parent homes, mm. who who were read to, they were given all these advantages, and you give them a test that focuses that test based on the things that they've been exposed to. Now they're the more intelligence ones. This right. is where people can talk about discrimination um, and how a system based on like socioeconomic status, not, not necessarily racial minorities, but socioeconomic status where mm-hmm. it provides advantages to those who were provided things early. And to me, that's not a measure of intelligence. Yeah. And to me, school doesn't identify who really intelligent kids are. The question is, I mean, in some ways, can schools punish those who are really intelligent? And, yes. the, and why? Like, I want to get your opinions on this. Why would a school um, environment actually punish somebody who's really intelligent? Um, I'm going to use the example of somebody who may be very intelligent, sitting in the traditional classroom, bored because they're not learning anything new and they're not being challenged, would then act up, maybe be disruptive, and um, uh, would then get this label and maybe be removed from the classroom. Okay, so there's the behavioral problem with the inability to just sit still. Yeah, right? Because you're just- I don't even want to say the bored thing. Take, uh, let's take take boys, for example. Okay. How are boys biologically developed for the most part throughout history? What are they designed to do? Be active. Be physical. Yeah. Hunt, Mm -hmm. right? Um, testosterone leads to like activity. I don't know if you can see the scratch on my face. My, you know, 16 month old, um, 17 month old, uh, he, he's like a spaz now. He's got so much it's energy. because you give him too much whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> take that glass away from him, Sean. <laughs> he's an angry drunk. He scratched my face, but he doesn't, he doesn't know any I'm better. Sure he deserved it. <laughs> the boys, boys are going to be, when I say vocal, they're going to be a little louder in classes. Yes. They're going to be a little bit more ambunctious. They're going to be risk takers. Uh, at a younger age. All right. So gen- gender differences. Who? Um, there's a lot of construction going on around here. What do you notice? It's mostly men. Almost all men. Yep. Right. Um, men by nature are going to be in the military, um, more active in the military as far as like warriors, right? Uh, um, on the front lines. And traditionally, they're going to be that. They're going to be active in, in terms of, um, you know, construction and building things. There's an activity level and an energy for a boy. It's, that's why sports are, are, are a great outlet. And obviously yeah. we're generalizing um, because that's not, that's not everybody. But try to take that boy, right, and put him in a box with rows of seats. And the skill set that leads to success is sitting in that seat for an extended period of time, absorbing information that's presented to you verbally, and following a rule. And that's what public education is in the United States. Why is it that way? 
well, I mean, that's the what history. is you training? Yeah, the the history of that would be going back to the basic fundamental needs at the time were just sit in the classroom. You need to learn some reading and speaking and some mathematics. And so it was, I guess, for lack of a better term, an assembly line of getting people to, you know, do this pass with whatever number they decided, and then you need to go out and work. So um, like during the industrial revolution, cur- well, yeah, like the I public say, school yeah. system was established. Yeah. And, and, and nothing is, nothing has, when you say change, I'd be very careful about this. They've changed, but the foundation of education has not changed. It's yeah. still an assembly line. Actually, I wanted to say this because I wrote it down. When you talk about boys, you talk about anybody sitting there, the conventional classroom with kids forced to do the same thing at the same time makes individual initiative and exploration nearly impossible. Right. Um, the outcome for every child is identical. And the next step basically has three pathways, in my opinion. Those three pathways, when, you turn, when you're 18 or you're graduating from high school, are you either go to college or you go to a certification program or you go to a trade school mm-hmm. or you simply take some, or you work. Right or take years off. Right now, college uh, college is a scam for 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 a large majority of people. Now there are professional career, careers that do require obviously specialized post secondary education. Right, yes, yeah. healthcare, law. Yes. Um, I I wouldn't even say business. Like I don't think that requires specialized secondary education. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but like the skill. I mean, it, it's almost there's a disconnect there. It's almost like you needed to achieve this, you know, you needed to pay for this right. in order to get this opportunity. But I want to go back because I want to intersect everything. Okay. Um, when there is a mismatch between an environment and what somebody is innately designed to do, you're going to have psychological, behavioral, and emotional struggle. Okay. Modern society of, of, of taking the individual and putting them in an office with... Uh, you know, without natural light, in a cubicle, all day, in front of a computer, and not expect that person to be depressed or to gain weight, to be unhappy. When you watch the movie The Office, I know it's a parody, but that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, let's, it goes back to like putting the kid in a box and expecting them to do things a certain way. And my biggest concern is that that behavior, when it doesn't fit the expectations of the environment, that it gets labeled as disordered. Correct. So we see the rise of this diagnosis called ADHD, mm-hmm. attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I was talking to a, a family this week whose child was diagnosed with ADHD, you know, when they were 13 and uh, you know, why were they diagnosed with ADHD only because they were having some struggles in a school environment in comparison to others in their, in their school environment. Now I'm not going to get into the validity of the ADHD diagnosis, but drug companies cannot make a lot of money if there's only a very, very small percentage of a population that requires their intervention. ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity 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 disorder. disorder. Another scam, right? Um, We'll have an entire podcast on this. So attention deficit, like your inability to focus. 
well, I think that's it's more a theory, than, right? Yeah. Your inability to focus. Well, I'm, what, yeah. what the so point spectrum, the point that I'm making is it's, it's not an inability to focus. It's a mismatch between an environment and, and, and who that person is designed to do, right? If you put the person out there who's supposed to be in construction, who's an artist, if you're someone's supposed to be out there, you know, who's got a career in the military or geez, only if they're going to be maybe an engineer and they, and they want to be able to create and design things and you ask them to be obedient and follow rule and they don't follow those rules to make them disordered. The problem is the environment, not the individual. So I have a relevant story that supports your, your assertion. So this is, um, this is recent and it's a 17 year old who, a 17 year old Roger that just was diagnosed with ADHD. And so it's 17 now, which is crap. This individual works, um, it's kind of like a co-op system, I guess you could say, but works. Uh, so, you know, attends in the morning and then goes to work in the afternoon. Thrives at the workplace. Right. Just is, is amazing. Like one of the model employees so, at the at the workplace so, so struggles in, in classrooms. So, so amazingly, they have attention in that environment and they, they don't in the other. And this is where, um, you know, public education is off the rails. When I worked there, we would have, you know, who's making recommendations that's saying a, a child is ADHD? A teacher. You know, a teacher who might see that person for like 45 minutes in a day. And because that person isn't following their rules in their classroom, he looks like he has ADHD. When I was in, when I was in the system, I would say, did you ever think maybe you're just boring? Hmm. You know, I would really say that to teachers. I know. You, I remember you know, that. Yeah. And they just like look at me laughing. Like, I'm not laughing. Right? Why is the kid the problem? We drove when I was in the in the middle school system. We drove so many kids to to drugs and so many kids to evaluations by a, a physician. You know, your your primary care physician is now diagnosing a kid with ADHD. Why? Because they filled out a checklist that was provided by the pharmaceutical industry. Right. That a ridiculous out of context. Right. Not knowing the kid. Fifteen minute checklist. And they they walked at it with a script of a stimulant. Right. An absolute stimulant. I was disgusted by the by the school environment and what they did to children at that particular time. Are still doing it. And you know, here's the thing about teachers and some of them are, you know, I hate overgeneralizing because you're a teacher. You know, there's some really good teachers and for the most part I think teachers generally care. They but, do. but who becomes a teacher? You know, who's driven to be a teacher? Ones who've thrived in that system right? They were obedient themselves. They got rewarded. They want to go back to it. They loved it. They look at the whole mentality of what worked for me is going to work for you. And they're going to force so, what worked for me on you. Let me put you both on the spot. I'm curious if you think back to your time in high school and even maybe even secondary education. I don't want to think about those dark days. <laughs> was, was there a memorable class or teacher that, yes. um, that influenced you and you learned a lot from and what were they doing differently? So I'll go first. Um, I had two teachers that I would I would remember, and it, this is going to be um, the kind of the way that I modeled and the way that I do things. And honestly, the biggest part about both of those teachers was I felt like I a had a voice, mm -hmm. b I had a very positive relationship with them, and not that I was on equal footing. I knew that they were still the authority, but at the same time. I felt that I could actually speak to them, ask questions, and both classes did the, exactly that they rewarded you on questions versus answers. Mm -hmm. That was the big key component that I saw. Yeah. You were being graded and assessed on your ability to question. Now, what that looked like, it didn't mean they gave me a multiple choice, um, like a Jeopardy thing here, <laughs> you, right? They, it, it, you know, but, but they just, they left it up to you to decide on what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And I thought, for me, that was the way to go. Yeah. That was the, 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 the way to, um, 
to learn. And I really enjoyed those classes, really bonded with those teachers. What about you, Raj? So I was always somebody, Sean, you always say, why, why, why? I haven't changed, I think, from for, sitting here at 45 years old to probably when I was 14 years old. Yeah, you've always been an ass. <laughs> That's a good one. That was a good one. I'm sorry. In, in, in some ways, you're accurate, right? Um, I always had a, a hard time with somebody telling me something that I thought was could be viewed from different viewpoints. Yeah. And it's just do it because I told you to do it, right? Or, you know, it's this way because it's the way that we've always done it. Now, first of all, being a boy who was an athlete, I had a hard time sitting in, in class. And then you add in, you know, somebody who liked to question authority. Who I was at that particular time in high school, if I, didn't, if I don't think that you cared about me or I didn't like you or you ran your classroom a certain way, I made it more difficult. I was not a good student in, mm -hmm. in high school. I found my niche post-secondary um, found what I was passionate about, found what I was good at, and I became an excellent student. But at that particular time, if there was a teacher that said, you need to follow these rules, you need to do it this way, I just refused to do it. And I created problems. But if I found, and this goes back to what you said about relationship, if I found somebody who was really um, invested in who their students were. Like they seem to care about you as a person, but they also love the idea of getting people to think. I thrived in that particular environment, mm -hmm. right? Because I could question, mm -hmm. right? And if I respected the person, then I'd control my behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, I would control my attention. I would control my behavior because I didn't want to negatively affect them, right? Like, it's almost like I cared back about them. And that was when I was in the school system, we worked really hard. I was just going to say, well, no, go ahead. On, develop, on talking about developing individual relationships yeah. to motivate behavior because we knew that was a, a factor in being able to, quote unquote, get the best out of your students and manage a classroom. Right. Right. And, and so uh, the other part about that is you wanted to work harder for those teachers. Yeah. So, so even though you may not have understood everything or the outcome, we'll talk about this in a second, was, oh, I didn't, I didn't get the greatest grade on the test because I didn't necessarily understand the content, but man, did I work hard. I put a ton of effort in. And one of the things that I know about both of those teachers, they noticed the effort yeah. and they, and, and they said, don't worry about, you know, okay, you didn't get what you want to hear. Don't worry about that right now. I'm really proud of you for where I saw that you worked hard. Listen, what your ideas are, are really strong. We're going to get there. They were encouraging through effort. So when I was a school counselor, you know, I was a school counselor getting my doctorate. So I was supporting my family as a school counselor. And in the school district that I was working in, there was a, it was really, you know, divided by the tracks. You know, you had low income kids Correct. On, on, uh, on the east end of town and some really high income kids on the west end of town. And it was divided because there was a hospital system, big, ho still there, yeah. big hospital <laughs> system on the west end of town. So you had these kids, predominantly white, who were the sons and daughters of physicians and healthcare professionals. And then on the other side of town was the lower income. And we would see this divide. It would come together in the, in a, in the middle school. Yeah. You had the separated elementary schools. It would come together in the middle school. And... As a counselor, I would develop relationships with the kids who were struggling emotionally and behaviorally, and I would learn a lot, right? So like they would 
they would come home and their responsibility was to take care of their younger siblings. Mm. And they had one parent, single family homes. And some of these kids were depressed and angry. You know, some of them came from backgrounds where they were abused or neglected. And then their behavior when they came into school, maybe they were tired, maybe they were hungry. They would come into the school environment and they would, um, they would develop symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or quote unquote depression and a label would be placed on them. And I would hear these, these um, teachers, even in parent-teacher conferences saying, I'm worried that your kid has ADHD. Yeah, I'm worried that your kid is depressed. That's still ongoing. And I would have to pull back and like go into the meetings. I'm like, hey, listen, this person is presenting based on what's going on in their life. Their conditions in their life aren't changing right now. How do we create an environment in here where they can be successful? And when those kids believe that you cared about them, they'd run through a brick wall for you. Yeah. So we would see teachers like, uh, like Mr. Weatherholt create this stimulating environment where he saw something in them and then they would just love coming to the class and they would behave. They would do what they, anything to get his approval, right? Yeah. So, and he would reward uh, certain behaviors like risk-taking, answering questions, leading, problem-solving, right? Um, it wasn't always about completing a homework assignment at home, which is part of the obedience to the authority. Do my worksheet. And if you do the worksheet and you follow my rules, I'm going to reward you with that with a great grade. So you see this, you have these kids who, who are who are top 10 in the class and valedictorians. All they are are the rule followers across every single subject. They just do the things as asked. And you put them in an environment where they have to collaborate and they have to act question authority and they have to problem solve a lot of them would get anxious about it yeah and they, they struggled in my class their parents would come in yeah you know almost like well you're breaking the rules that we know in order to be successful in the system we have like right now my child is uh you know number three in the class <laughs> and um, there's a certain expectation you know you do the work you know you should be rewarded with your class rank and mr weatherholt um we don't even know, you know, where our child stands with these grades. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this at the time, you know, Kelly would be trying to, to kind of get them to think differently. Well, it's not really about the grade. It's about a, like a skill to try to develop, um, you know, for life. Like this is what I'm trying to develop. And they'd lose their minds. You know, <laughs> Kelly would leave and then they'd sit down with me and they just couldn't, they couldn't believe it because in their world, if you're obedient, you do what you're supposed to do. You do. You put more time in. You study. You fill out these worksheets. You regurgitate the information that's provided to you. Then you get ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. Then you get ahead in life. And this is part of the problem, you know, with with the system. Look what it's rewarding and who it's rewarding. So there are two things too. Like I ha actually did have good conversations with those parents, and I think for the most part, with the exception of maybe one or two, um, <laughs> we ended up. They ended up actually you know, understanding. And, um, that was a good thing. There were teachers though that, that, that Roger's talking about that would sit there and they'd look at what I was doing and others. It wasn't just me that was, that was doing some of these things. Anybody that allowed students to question or take risks or, you know, um, had really positive relationships, 
the teachers that didn't understand how to do that, man, did they rip into you. They, they would sit there and minimize you. They would talk about you. They would say, well, that's just weird and strange and dumb. Don't listen to Mr. Weatherhold. You know, this is not the real, he doesn't teach real world. That was the big thing, like real world. I'm like, what the hell does that even mean? They're, they're, when they're 13 <laughs> and 14 years old and you're sitting there saying, you're giving them real world access by giving them homework every night and then, you know, telling them to take a multiple choice test so they can vomit the answers onto your paper. Is that real world? And, and Kelly, do you know their real world? They've been, all they know is the system. Yeah. Now from elementary through high school into college to becoming a teacher from age five to age 65, their real world was only that system. So from their perspective, success in their system is exactly what they're doing. I'm afraid I come across too angry on this podcast. <laughs> no, you're emotional. Yeah. I, it almost feels like 20 years of frustration comes out when I get behind this microphone. Well, because yeah, but you, you were, were a, you, you were a, a part student. of you were a part of a system and you were a good he was a really good counselor and helped a lot of people out and I think he saw you know a, something that was broken. In my opinion, but you were also a student that got a label in well, high school. Um I, I, I don't know so much about college, but um you had an at, you had an attitude about you. You still have an attitude <laughs> about you and and it a lot of teachers did not respond favorably to that. They so, did. How about talk to me about that? Can we go into that a little bit? <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. Right. <laughs> Come on. But Kelly, do you remember I developed the the Madden Club? Yes. Madden football. Yes. So I took these kids who were struggling. All the kids that I'm talking to you about who came from lower income families and were struggling behavioral. And you know, like what a 13 year old boy or a 14 year old boy is like. Do you think they're going to sit in front of you and just like talk to you? and like talk about their experience in their lives? No. So instead I developed Madden Football Club. I got television in my office and um, PlayStation. Yes. And I would take them back and we'd play Madden. And while we played Madden, we talked, mm. right? And when they're playing Madden, in the middle of like talking shit on me and doing all <laughs> these things, it we would just flow into conversation and I could just bring things up like, you know, you know, what, what's, what's, what's going to be, what's going to happen after school today? You know, what's going on today? What are you doing today? Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then sometimes they would just be talking about their father who left, who left the family or, um, the fact that they, um, you know, they have to watch their younger kids or they're not sleeping at all. Right. And you realize that you had to engage people differently. Right. You know, so, and then the teachers, they crucified him behind his back in terms of, oh, look, they're playing football again. They're yeah, playing they thought video you were just games. screwing yep. around. You oh, weren't yeah. doing your job. Right. I just go there and their play video idea of the games. job was yeah. not that. And I would go into the classroom. I'd take them out in the middle. Like, you know, I, I tried <laughs> to spread it out. You know, like, yeah. I'm not going to miss their, you know, math class every day. But God forbid I would take them out for 20 minutes. It's like this kid could no longer move forward in life because they missed 20 minutes of eighth grade English. Right. It was the, it was the oddest thing in my mind. And I sometimes I have to sit back and hey, listen, I love, you know, how much you're invested in, in your curriculum and, and these, and these kids and, and being able to do well in your class. But I, I can guarantee you that 20 minutes of that class it's unlikely he he heard anything you said anyway, <laughs> and it's just not that important. Now I would say these things, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you say like, if you want to go back to my reputation from high school, in some ways I wasn't that different. I would say what I believed, right? While a lot of people around me were learning the skill to you know not say what's on your mind, right? Mm -hmm. 
and I haven't stopped with that, right? <laughs> Even at 45, I'm, I'm somebody who's- Do you think he stopped? No. Getting better now? Yeah, absolutely I'm, I'm basically going to say what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Yeah. You know, um, I might not be right all the time, but I, I certainly have developed this kind of radical honesty, you know, in my life. And I need to. I'm going to, if I remember correctly in high school, there was a period of time, maybe like your junior, senior year, where you had that reputation, you were kind of aggressive at times. And, and there was a teacher that started a boxing club. Mm. And didn't he pull you into that boxing that club? That was middle school. Was that middle school? That was eighth grade. Wow. Was it really? Mm -hmm. Man. Uh, a boxing you club? You could never get away with that today. But he, That's awesome. he knew that you were somebody that had a lot of energy and sitting down in a classroom environment probably was not right for you. Yeah. And I remember that teacher and I was thinking like, man, that teacher's a nut job. <laughs> right? <laughs> but maybe he was onto something. Oh, he knew. He knew. Yeah. I mean, that's just someone like, hey, you ha you keep this kid, you know, in this in this box for 45 minutes throughout an entire day. It's like a caged animal, mm -hmm. right? And and that's what I felt like. Yeah. I've at that time in my life, I felt like a caged animal. <laughs> <laughs> and I could not tolerate sitting there and listening to, and I used to look around me and see people scribbling notes and uh, like raising their hand and I couldn't get it. I'm like, what is the matter? I couldn't, I could not get it. While others might com compare themselves like I'm not as good enough to them. I'm like, what is the matter with everyone? Like, is this what life is? And I mean, that was something that was, within me innate i can't even explain why right mm. it's just who i am personality wise you know um you had thrown out the question earlier about what the ideal education system may look like i think i think we need to kind of touch more on those um what not, is the ideal education system in a great society yes all right what tell me the skills sean that you needed to you need to be successful in your job in your previous job there's there's two ways to go about this. So if if you were going to be in a classroom environment where there is some type of um, you know professor teaching you or a teacher spending time with you, I go back to those things that are most important in life. Um, for me, it was like you know personal finance literacy, like actually sitting down with a teacher and really understanding what a budget is, compounding interest, how loans work. Rich dad, poor dad. Rich dad, R poor dad. Right, stuff, great yeah. book. Yeah. Um, data analysis. Uh, the way that the world works now, there is a ridiculous amount of, of data and information. If you're going to go into a business environment, how do you uh, kind of go through the amount of information to to try and understand things better? And that could be applied. So to you're talking about curricular changes in yes. general. Critical yeah. thinking. That's uh, Problem lo logic solving. and reasoning at, at the basis, um, which then leads to more critical thinking. Teach people how to think, not what to think. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, and, and then just based on, you know, what we're learning here in the discussion, you know, how do you take some of those, uh, lessons, bring it out of a classroom environment and have other ways of teaching maybe towards the way that you approached it in terms of having some students open up, you know, doing things that they actually enjoyed while also communicating with them and learning from them and then they learning from you. How do you like get out and like be active while also continuing to learn? I go back to what a classroom environment was back in the days of Aristotle. You know, you go back to Rome where it was um, it was a person speaking in front of Socratic. Many people. Socratic dialogue. Dialogue. 
dialogue, having yeah. conversations. Yeah. The Q&A part of it to me, and you all said Q&A as one of the most sure. memorable classes for you. So this goes, then this will lead to, I, that's what I do. Now, yeah. why don't a lot of other educators do it? The one thing that stands in their way is how do I grade that? How do I assess oh, it? Yeah. How do I get to a number? Because, because they're, because and uh, Kelly, this is a great point. They actually think they're the gatekeepers to society, right? Teachers. That, teachers. That their grade, what they give a person somehow is going to determine and, then. And I'll, I'll tell you what, um, pull the blindfold off. I don't know any of my grades in high school, college. Uh, I did all right. It doesn't I had a mean horrible anything. freshman year. Um, but the, I, the, by being curious, that's what's propelled me in my professional career. Asking questions, listening, finding out who had information, being comfortable to talk to other human beings. And think about that. You, everything you're saying is absolutely at, at um, 100% we should be doing. How do you grade it? I'm not, I don't, I don't believe in this. He knows I don't believe in it. And I've changed you my system. So you guys talked about but, it in the youth sports conversation. <clears throat> you, you, you need to find a way to reward uh, process over outcome. Correct. So I would be thinking about things completely different, right? I, my, my goal in any type of great society or education system is to provide the, the found some of the foundations of, of learning. Like I do believe you have to understand mathematics and you have to be able to read, but that tends to be the, you know, the elementary level of education. As somebody develops, there's a unique individual with a talent, right? And maybe this is the spiritual side of, of me, but I do believe everyone has a purpose and a value. Then that purpose and value doesn't have to serve uh, a business, right? Some of the purpose and value could be of like nurturing, right? And taking care of, you know, some um, are great mothers in, in society who keep families together. But it also can be, you know, great artists and writers and historians, um, healers. You can be interested in medicine. You could, you could be interested in, in, in business. So Sean automatically goes to like financial literacy, but it's again, back into a system. But right? I, I love that stuff though. You I do, enjoy you're great it. At, you're I actually, enjoy it. what Sean, I've, and I didn't even know this I about discovered, you. I discovered it through, um, by not having an understanding of it and self-teaching myself. I just had a repressed memory pop into my head. Uh-oh. Sean, I don't know if you even remember this. I told you my memory. I, I push things away. <laughs> I, bury, I, I just remember the good stuff. I literally just had a repressed memory <laughs> pop into my head about when I was in second grade. Oh, and that's when we weren't even living in this area. You might not remember this because if I was second grade, I don't know. What was I like seven? Yeah. So you were like five. I was kindergarten. So in, in my classroom, the way that the teacher and this was in elementary school. So you're in the same classroom all day that um, you would get this this box of chips, all right? Uh, like poker chips. Oh, I was gonna yeah. And uh, if you were acting out of line, right? Calling out non-obedient behavioral problem, you would have to walk up and put your chip oh. in, in the, the teacher's box. So make a nice little away. clinging noise as you did it. Yeah. So you're like shamed and embarrassed. You know, you have to walk up the aisle to the front of the classroom and at the end of the week, right, whoever has all their chips gets this recognition and this certificate, okay? And so on Fridays, um, you would, my dad would come home from work. And, that, and this is, you know, this is back in the early 80s. And so it's almost like it was very, tra it was traditional. You know, my mom stayed home with us 
and my dad went off to work. So one of the ways we were like disciplined, it's like, wait till your father gets home, right? So every Friday, he would walk in the door, right? And he'd say, where's your certificate, okay? So the year goes on. Who's the only kid in the class who never gets a certificate? <laughs> me, right? Me. And it gets to the point where I'm so scared every Friday night for my dad to get home and ask for the certificate that I'm at, in tears at the dinner table, right? And then my parents, like, they, they, uh, they, they have a, a parent-teacher conference to see, like, what is going on. And I found this, uh, this report card from second grade because um, my mom kept all these things from yeah. when we were childhood. Yep. And it, it called me a chatterbox. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, difficulty following the rules. Do, you know, does what he wants to do. You know, like all these things. And um, it's almost like this memory pops out and, I, and there's almost like anxiety that's, that's associated with it because I, I had a difficult time even at age seven being able to follow those rules and then I'd be punished for it at home. I remember it with dried beans. Like you, it wasn't chips. It was dried beans. That's right. Oh, it was dried beans. You pulled it right out of my memory box. I, you yeah. haven't repressed all your memories. No, not all of them. <laughs> so it was dried beans that you had to drop in instead of poker yeah. chips. All right. Yeah. Which still makes an obnoxious sound when you drop it in. Yes. Yes, yeah. it does. It's, wow. But, yeah. But think, think about what you're, what you're how you're modeling. shaping and modeling behavior. Yeah. Yep. All right. I have, an, I have so, an, another ahead. topic. All right. I think we've beat the obedience, you know, topic dead right now the other thing that i saw in public schools that has my god evolved a hundredfold was sensitivity to anything outside of an accepted behavior that it could mean something really dangerous right and i thought it started and i could be wrong because it's just a matter of like when i was in the system if you remember columbine mm -hmm. and uh you know you had those kids come in the trench coat mafia 1999 i think uh, I think, I you're think right. it, no, I, I'm going to say it was 1999. Mm, it was 99. Right. Yeah, it was 99. Yeah. Because I, I remember I was at I was the in, gym. I was in college. I was at the gym watching it. They came, you know, those kids came in, uh, you know, with guns. And it's kind of our first exposure to the mass shooting. And no one ever wants to go back and say what psychiatric drugs were those kids on, but they were, on, you know, on and off psychiatric drugs. I'm going to put that to the side. Okay. And the role of psychiatric drugs may be in violence, mass violence. There's a lot of data out there from, um, uh, from court documents uh, on the criminal side about the role of psychiatric drugs in, in provoking violence. Right. So this, you know, it used to be that those who were the ment mentally ill were less, uh, and I had this conversation last night when we were talking about this with a, a friend of mine who's a cop, the mentally ill traditionally have been less aggressive and violent than the, than the, the overall population. And I don't know if that's the case anymore, um, because of the role of drugs and just being disconnected from reality. But there became this hypersensitivity after that, right? To school violence, school shootings. Students trying to backpacks. Backpacks were taken away from students at our school district. Yeah. But trying to identify who those kids might be, right? There was this hypersensitivity. Oh my God, if you are experiencing an emotional struggle or emotional problem, you could be violent, mm -hmm. right? And it led to this segregation, of anybody who was outside the the norm. So if you go back into the late 90s, 2000s, um, remember that term goths? Yeah, yeah. 
right? So it'd be people who would kind of dress in black, mm-hmm. wear a certain eyeshadow, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, they were actually kind of just communicating their their emotions, right? They were probably prone to emotions pretty strongly. They might have been into music. They were they artists. Love the Cure. <laughs> uh, what's you're dating one? yourself? No, yeah. the Cure is good music. Come on, kids, but listen d- to it. It's <laughs> old, but yeah, listen to it. The Smiths. The Smiths. Yes. <laughs> Um, but I, I remember, you know, being in the system at, at that time in our, in our team meetings and the teachers would be so concerned and very, very serious, right? So serious, dramatically serious. And it, and it wasn't, and it, and it was a difference between like a, a decade ago, like there was an acceptance of normal childhood behavior, right? That it just, it was variable, you know, but now everything became so much more serious and what's, and what was the solution? You know, they needed to go into the mental health system, right? As if like to, to protect us and to protect them. Like if they could find the right drug, well, then they're going to be okay in my class and I don't have to worry about their outbursts or we don't have to worry about them coming in with the trench coat and, and they would use these words, you know, and, and the machine gun. And statistically, they, I mean, it's almost like you completely lost sense of reality. Statistically, something like that is so rare. You know, but the media would use it and government would use it to their own advantage to push agendas. Those agendas right now are, um, you know, at, at, out of control. You know, and now we see why like 20, 20% of people on psychiatric medications and teens being over-identified and being pushed into a system. I believe that it was, it began um, kind of in that era and it was, it was, it's now an oversensitivity thoughts. I, I agree. Can we establish this as kind of a connection to the poli- using politics then in, in that, um, you know, particularly with emergencies, stuff like that, and bringing it into education? And I, I think that this is of utmost importance for um, to talk about. Um, one of the questions you had brought up a while ago is, have things changed since you left? And I can answer that fairly easily and say no. So let's put a time, you know, it's, what's it been 12 years since I've been there? Yeah. You're talking about like the high school level, right? Specifically. I would say both. High I would school, say middle school? High school, middle school. High school, middle things, school. Okay. Things have, have really not changed, so even though there's Seventh been, grade to 12th grade. Correct. Yeah. Things have not necessarily changed. Um, to, to, to that extent, uh, one, of the, one of the issues that I'm seeing is how politics is, is playing a role. And um, mm-hmm. what are the politics? Like what is... I don't want to speak so generally. Let's get to the point. Like, what's what's the ideology? So, uh, can I touch Go on ahead. something? Yeah. I'm sorry to, to interrupt because, um, you know, I've been, I've been removed from the school system since you know 2000, basically, when I started, you know, working. Um, and my recollection, I'm going to use like my high school experience. You know, it was like most anybody else's, and and I don't know, you know, how it's changed. But at the university level. Um, you know, go back to like what was happening in, in the mid nineties. That was like what my experience was like. If you watch that movie PCU, uh, which is a, a, you know, a comedy uh, movie with like Jeremy Piven and, and Andy Dick, I believe there was just like these little groups of subcultures that existed and, you know, the protest generation. Meat tosser. Yeah. So like that type of stuff, like that was the environment that I recall. Uh, and I, we, we touched on this in a conversation. I don't think we ever recorded in a podcast, but there was the, um, the documentary that came out with Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager called No Safe Spaces. Mm, yeah. And it was about what was happening in the university level in terms of freedom of speech and how that is now being uh, at the university level. The, the progressive movement has moved in so far 
that now you can't say anything um, and a lot of uh, anything that's on the conservative side is being attacked and people are losing. All right, hold on. It's really interesting. We got to pull it back here. Okay. So we have to define what politics mean because when we start going into just two categories, I think it confuses everyone because it's ideas of it is different for every other person. Okay. So the Democrat party traditionally, right? And um, it used to be uh, almost like a middle-class party, right? The working people, like the labor party. And a lot of people still identify that that political party or that political ideology is the support of the little person, right? Whether it's the person in society who is working class or a minority group, it was. it's almost like you were trained to believe that that party supported those rights, right? And... Um, it's not, it's not that anymore. I mean, a lot of people talk about things being left and right and don't even know what it means. The ideology is different. When you talk about uh, that progressive ideology, progress for them is what? Like, what are we seeing is, is, as is progress? Yeah, I'd, be, I'd caution you not to apply the progressive movement just to the Democratic. I mean, it's, it's a movement within the Dem- Democratic Party, a, a kind of a, a subculture within it. But liberalism... Um, is uh, within the Democratic Party, and it's not part of the progressive movement. Like the people who are liberal are being attacked by the progressive movement. I consider myself liberal. I'm liberal too. Um, maybe like financially conservative, socially liberal. Uh, I, exactly. I would, That's so how I define so myself. Socially liberal, fis- conservative, fiscally. Yeah. Liberal. So yeah. now, if you're if you're defined a liberal, um, what does that mean in people's current eyes? Like. Um, like you're supporting big government and control and big tech. Like that's not what liberal is to me. Liberal, liberal comes from the, the word liberty, right? And the protection of the individual rights. Can I, as an educator, just kind of put this in? You asked what politics. The politics start with the curriculum. The curriculum begins and it, it is about equity. It's about equality for all. The outcomes of quality of outcome, uh, quality of outcome, not equality, no, not equality of, of opportunity. That is correct because we know there's not... Uh, one of the big differences there is there's not a quality of opportunity. Uh, no, there's a quality for opportunity. You are you're n- you're never going to get to a quality of outcome, which which has led to the the um, the dumbing down of the of the content in order for everyone to be successful. So that's one inflation of grades. Correct. Right. Um, if you don't do well, it is some it's somebody else's fault. Right. So the environment controls everybody. Not the not one's individual talent or hard work. So when a and people might be asking, well, didn't you just talk about the environment being the problem? Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're talking about. Does the environment support those who are the hardest workers, who are the innovators, who are talent? Do we allow them to rise up and separate themselves from the pack? Not putting a label like gifted because you have some number on an IQ test that you took when you were eight. Does, do, are you developing the skills that allow you to separate? And in that, we create a great society. So we create a great, and this ultimately, when you look at our podcast, aren't we talking about creating a great society? Yes. Where there's equality of opportunity, where there's fairness, where there's respect, right? And, and those have the ability to create a life that for them, is their purpose. Correct. And I think when that exists, you are more protected against mental health problems. Now, if you do not have a, a quality of opportunity, right, and your life is limited or restrict, restricted to what an elite class can provide you, right, and you're in a box and you can't break out of that box, 
You know, what's innately inside of you to want to create a life of purpose and value, because I think we're driven. When that's taken away, when that motivation is taken away and it's punished, I do think systems then control you. And is, so what is a progressive movement? Is, a, is that progress in society when they try to say we can control equality of outcomes, but then limiting your individual freedom? And is that then taught and rewarded and punished in school systems? Teachers, just like students will look, we're talking about is be obedient to teachers. Teachers, for the most part, again, I'm going to blanket it because there's nothing else I can do, are going to look at the standards that are coming from the bureaucrats and they're going to say, if I follow those standards, then I'm a good teacher. And many, and, and many teachers will get anxious that they're not following it. I've, I, these are conversations that happen day to day. If I, what if I don't have, you talked about how, um, you know, oh, I'm taking my kid for 20 minutes. There are teachers that will look at you and say, yeah, but we're going over this anchor today. And if they're not present in my class for that particular anchor, they're not going to learn it. So then Kelly, does, does progress in a, in a progressive movement sway more to what a society would look like in, you know, communist China than what would look in a, a, a traditional capitalistic society. Like, isn't that what progress, so, socialism to communist ideas, right? It's, it's Co- bureaucratic, collect- collectivism. collectivism, government driven, right? So if you develop wide-based national standards, right, it is the bureaucrats determine you know, what you need to achieve in order to be successful for the society that we want to run. Correct. And then who is that who is running the society? You know, and maybe a a communist China, it is a, a political class. In the United States, it's an oligarch. It's a, it's a class that's driven by the corporation. The corporation runs the United States because they buy the politicians and then they have to train the worker. And that's what progressiveness has turned into. That's why you wear um, obedience cloths for masks. That's why they can tell you, um, you know, how you can behave the, in a restaurant or what your business can and can't so do. So can I intervene? Because Sorry. when you keep saying progressive and then you're bringing up that, I don't disagree with you, but there is another part to this with politics. And that is uh, virtue signaling. That is bringing in to the classroom, all right? Um, I, do, I do what everyone else does. Reward me. I'm part of you. Correct. Right? If you don't, we're gonna, if you're outside of that, we're going to drug you. So that's that progressives, and I agree with Sean, there are, there are definitely two distinct mm-hmm. uh, um, factions within the Democratic Party right now. Yep. But progressives bring that and they say, that's where the change is occurring. That's where we're going to get a quality of outcome. You must understand what privilege is. You must understand that we need to normalize the abnormal. There are people that, that feel a certain way. We need to make them feel as if they're part of that. Renormalizing. You can look it up. So, they're, they, so they become these re-education camps, right? Where now the school system is also bringing in like morality, right? And, they're, and into the school system, they're able to talk about things like because of the color of your skin, right? That is the reason that you have achieved some privilege in, in society and you have the things that you do. It does no longer ha- has to do with your, your talent or your hard work. And, and in fact, you're made to feel guilty if you have things that other people do not have, right? And boy, that is, that is life. Like if you're in an elite class, right? If you 
if you come from a family that um, has done really well in business in this society, you are afforded opportunities that others don't. But somewhere along the line, somebody had some success in, in this world. And so like when we talk about trying to build a better life for our own, our own children, and Sean and I talk about this you know, quite frequently, um, you know, your, own, your own children, if they have things because of the work that we, we have done or some of the sacrifices we have made, they're going to be made to feel guilty for that, for that experience, right? And what does that drive? I mean, that's just going to drive policy and ideology to give it back. And who are you giving it back to? You're giving it back to somebody else. Now that's progressive. And who thinks that's progressive? Or who thinks it's progressive when, when, you, when you use identity politics to divide and control? Why is that progressive? Or how it doesn't about, feel like it's progressive in a great how about society. The, how about the amount of individuals and students? If we're being progressive, then shouldn't students that are leaving our systems be much more resilient, much more able to think for themselves? That's progressive. That's progress. Yeah. Progress by definition. We're not even close to that right now. I ha- we have more kids that are being diagnosed with anxiety disorders, with depression. On Every, every year it gets wor- uh, further and further. So isn't that good evidence to suggest that is not best for the, for the person? Yeah. I think we've touched on this in, in other conversations. Like they you're, don't have coping skills. You're anxious and depressed for a reason though, right? You are because, not supposed because it's to things be that you can't control you because are, somebody else is, is making you the victim. Free, you, you're being held back. Free floating anxiety. Free, yeah, actually I completely agree. And, right. and when I, I'm going to go back to what I started off this whole discussion about, and I used Andrew Carnegie as an example, like, he was a very poor person who worked jobs making probably the equivalent of like $40 a week today, uh, doing like bobby pins and constantly struggled and, and worked his way up. The idea of, of those struggles and somebody saying something like you're not capable of doing things, those are motivators. Those aren't like attacks on you that you all of a sudden have to crumble and die and hide in the corner. There are people that are motivated and are pushed and they, they have a sense of purpose to prove others wrong. Like those are the things that have motivated me throughout life is like, you know what? You said I couldn't do that. The hell with you. I'm going to do it just to spite you. Yeah. And this is freedom. Like yeah. our ability to get on this microphone and say these things are freedom in other countries around the world. We could never even do this Yeah. in other societies. We, and listen, it's trending in that direction. They don't want us to have this type of discussion. They do not. You know, they want people to be that docile, that obedient. And when you don't feel good, why don't you come to, to, uh, uh, to big government and big pharma and we'll try to make you feel better by giving you things. And if that's not satisfying enough, here, take this pill. Maybe we can uh, do something with, uh, you know, serotonin, you know. But like if they viewed it that way, you know, that you're being drugged into to obedience you know, it, it obviously, you know, that doesn't work in society. Instead, we have to create a, a, a label for you. Mm-hmm. We were, I was talking about this with some people on Twitter yesterday, that in the mental health system, if you don't agree with your label, then you are resistant. And if you are resistant, you might be labeled with a personality disorder. You know, and I said something, yeah, the, the personality disorder is like resisting bullshit disorder, you know, <laughs> you know, something to that fact, right? There, there are people who can just resist bullshit, you know, and that, and, and that, if that physician in society is just an arm of the oligarch, you know, it's just an arm of the system to saying, Hey, you're not happy with the way things are in the way that you're living in the, in, in the culture that you live in. And you don't really have upward mobility or you're stuck inside this box here. We'll give you Netflix 
here, we're going to give you these foods with these chemicals. We're going we're gonna to drug you into being fat, passive, and obedient. And then when you get sick, we're going to sell you some more drugs. Emotionally sick, when you're physically sick. Oh, what's the problem? Let's, let's destigmatize all this, right? Like you have a mental illness. Let's get more people mentally ill. And by the way, if you question us, if you question us at all, then you're going to, you know, we're going to punish you. Yeah. And then that's where we're at in education as well. That's why I said a lot of students appreciate the fact that they can question things and they feel much more confident that way, but it is not. And there's, and there's right now there's 70% of the people who are listening to this who think we're crazy, right? Um, because we were just talking about those numbers with um, Ty's Desmond and we're talking about, yeah, uh, you yeah. know, like the, that, the obedience to, to authority. And, and they'll be anxious about it. They'll be nervous about it. Because they don't think, I mean, they, they don't think any other way than what they've been told. Like, these are the rules. Oh my God, if I have to think about it differently, I have to step outside the rules. That's too much anxiety for me. Like, I need to follow the rules. And, you know, that's taught and that's shaped and that's conditioned. And so virtue signaling is for the individual, the fear of being different is so, so strong that um, they have to let everyone know that they're one of them. That's why they wear the masks on social media, on uh, you know, their Twitter profiles with the masks, which obviously now they're starting to take down because, my God, it didn't work. <laughs> so how do you identify somebody's potential in a certain area at a young age so you might be able to guide them down a path when they just really need to discover it themselves? Yeah, so I said that every... Well, I don't know if you discover it yourself. I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody. Some, no. some people are just limited in their ability to do that. Um, you know, my skill set, my, my purpose, my skill set is I love getting to understand people and what makes them unique. Because this is what I love about my job. I never meet the same person twice. And being able to understand who they are and their purpose, how they feel, how they think, me in that environment gets to, you know, that's my skill set. You know, I've, you know, if I'm in a school system, I've, I've been spending time w- with Kelly. He is somebody who really thinks differently about things that are presented to him. He challenges ideas. He's creative and he cares, you know, so you have to then take him and you move him in a direction that uh, gets the best out of him. Sean is analytical. Sean loves data points. Sean thinks about how uh, information can um, be used to be able to help people. Like, you know, you find that person and you shape them and you let them work in and have their opportunities and freedoms to create a life for themselves that can be useful to the society. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that's extremely hard to do for a teacher in the current education system uh, because that requires a little more individual time, uh, one-on-one time uh, with someone to really truly understand. But if it, it wouldn't be hard if we changed, if that system would change. That's, yeah. that's not as hard as you would think. The system itself, all right, is, is there and until you can break free from it um, and take the risks as a teacher. If you know that getting kids to question things rewarding them for the questions that they ask, taking risks. If you want them to be resilient, there is a way to change your classroom so that you can do that. The problem is you have to break the system. You can't, mm-hmm. you, be, you cannot be obedient. And I want to kind of close, close off on this. I mean, okay. we've, we've talked for a while about this. Um, it's this idea of, of a great society. And Sean, I made a comment to you, you know, yesterday, um, and you were talking about income inequality in, in a lot of ways. 
And uh, Sean made the comment about about greed. And uh, you know, I, he said, okay, what is, what is greed? I guess it's having more than you actually need. Um, in, a, in a great society, you know, there are going to be people who rise up and have success, and then there's going to be people who, for whatever reason, are unable to do that. Um, and it could be on multiple factors. It could be differences in talent, but mm-hmm. it could be differences in um, you know, work ethic or personality, or it could be circumstances that have been, you know, that are outside of, of their control. In, in my idea, in a, in a great society, we take care of those people. And I don't mean government-driven. Mm-hmm. I mean individually different, driven, that the people do that, right? If you have more than what you need, then you use that for the, better, the betterment of society. Um, and there's value into allowing people to have freedom to be able to make as much money as they want. It gets to be a problem with that if, if, that, if that money and that system closes off opportunity to others and limits another person's upward mobility. And then those people hoard it. Right. And that's like that. That is the great other side debate is that if the 1% or the less than 1% is able to hoard resources um, at the expense of others, we have to look at then where that system and how that system has kind of created that. So we we're attacking the educational system, which I, thankfully we are, but then, that system's in place too. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. So if I, if I just added on to it, I said, if anything, right, which would represent freedom is the ability to critique the system, right? And that's all, that's all this is right now. The ability to be critical of the system and allow people to make decisions on that, to think about things a little bit differently. Change is, change is coming, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a lot of, of the curtain has been pulled back on a lot of our systems um, and how they've served some people and harmed others. We're talking about that, right? I've always believed in trying to um, arm and, and allow for the individual to protect themselves and the family to make the best decisions possible and any system that limits their ability to do that. I'm almost anti-collectivism because collectivism to me is a government run, a bureaucratic run or an oligarchy system while a system that supports the individual is greater for the, the greater good because it, that can allow us to care about other people without it being forced upon each other, without these ideas being forced upon each other, without these, these labels, these diagnoses, these restrictions, these drugs. Taking care of other people doesn't mean following the rules that someone else is telling us. Taking care of other people is because it comes from our heart, because it's really what we want to do. Remember, the unstoppable force here is education, free will, learning, how to think for yourself, and the immovable object is the system. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.